you know, the, the video is entitled Why Women Live Longer Than Men. Uh, and so you may have noticed that the commonality in that video is that all of those brilliant decisions were made by men. But what you may not have noticed is that in all of those moments, those guys were by themselves. See, I've become convinced over the years that we make dumber decisions when we're by ourselves. I know I have made some decisions by myself when I've been isolated and alone that if I'd had just one good friend of either gender there, I would not have made that decision. This week, I, I was thinking about one of those moments, and it happened uh, a few years ago around Christmas time. Do I have any pumpkin fans in the house? Anybody love pumpkin things? You know, I like pumpkin things. I, I still don't understand why we don't eat pumpkin all year round. You know, like if pumpkin's that good, why only eat it from like September to December? It's the same logic I use for my hatred of peeps. If they were that good, you'd eat them more than one weekend a year. You'd have Christmas peeps, you'd have Fourth of July peeps, you know, you'd have peeps all year long. They're not that good. That's why you can only handle them for one season of the year. But when it comes to pumpkin, I, I'd always loved pumpkin roll. Back when I could still have dairy, I loved pumpkin roll. And so one year I, I read a, a recipe for, for pumpkin roll and I said, you know what, like I can read, I can follow the directions, I can make this. And so I went to the grocery store and we got our groceries for the week and I bought all the ingredients to make a pumpkin roll. My wife was at work, and so I'm, I'm kind of working in the kitchen, and I get to this point in the roll recipe, and I'm like, this is not going to turn out. This is, this is just a total failure. Instead of making the wise decision and declaring failure and going back and buying a pre-made pumpkin roll, I went back and got in ingredients for two more tries. Because I figured, you know, I must have just screwed it up, and in case I screwed up again, I've got another shot. And so I tried the second round, got to the same point in the recipe, it broke down. It didn't work. I'm in the middle of the third try when my wife walks in. Now, the one piece of information I didn't tell you that you may find important is that it was Christmas Eve. We were preparing to host a party, and she walked in, and the kitchen was just destroyed. And I think her exact words were, what have you done to my house? I mean, it was a complete mess, and she had people coming over in two hours. She's like, go shower. And I came out, and she'd taken what was my kind of incomplete recipe, and I was like, what did you do? And she's like, I'm a baker. I know how to do this. And so she turned out this perfect, perfect pumpkin roll, and I've never tried it again. I just go to Costco and buy one, and, and uh, life is easier that way. But I made the decision in the moment to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, and the mess ensued. And one of the things I, I want to talk to us today is about the reality of, of isolation and loneliness. Because I think one of the things that's happened over the last 14 months is that we've become more isolated and more lonely, maybe than we ever have before. This isn't to say that before COVID and before March of 2020, all of us had perfect relationships. I mean, I don't think anybody would say like, hey, I had every relationship I could have wanted before that. I think we tend to sanitize our memory sometimes. Uh, it was not like we had perfect relationships before COVID-19. But the challenge is, is that I think we've stepped into toxic levels of isolation and loneliness. See, even before COVID-19 in the nation of Great Britain, they named a minister of loneliness. Minister of Defense, Minister of Health. Secretary of State and Minister of Loneliness. It's a cabinet-level position because loneliness was that bad in Great Britain. This is before COVID-19. 
before distancing, before masks, before staying in homes. That's how bad it was. And the question I want to pose to you, if you're watching online or you're here in the room, is, is it possible you've gotten used to a level of loneliness and isolation because it's just been normal for so long for you? Have you gotten used to the fact that you don't have people that you can turn to when things go south? Have you gotten used to the fact that your circle has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller? Have you gotten used to just doing things by yourself? And, and not being alone because you enjoy the solitude, but being alone because you don't have any other options. See, today as we talk about rebuilding, we're going to talk about rebuilding our relationships. We've been in this series for the last three weeks talking of the story of Nehemiah in the middle of the Bible, a man who led an epic rebuilding project. And if you missed the first couple weeks, I want to catch you up. In week one, we talked about processing our pain with God in prayer, that, that when we go through something that's uh, a breaking point or a falling down or things coming apart, that, that that produces pain. And the healthiest place to take that pain is to God in prayer and to begin to process with him what we're going through, not just praying to him and saying, I need you to do this or I need you to do that, but building conversational intimacy with God. If you were here last week, we talked about the idea that, that when we plan, we are, we're planning with wisdom and implementing with courage, that it takes courage to pursue a rebuilding project. The easiest thing to do is leave whatever was broken in the state that you found it. It takes courage, it takes boldness, it takes wisdom to create a plan and, and implement that plan. If you haven't followed this series, I'd encourage you to go on our website, prescottcornerstone.com, and visit the sermon archive and get caught up. It's been awesome to hear from you as you've discussed this series in your group, as you've gone on and watched the messages, and as you've shared it with your friends. But as I mentioned today, we're going to talk about rebuilding together. And here's our big idea. Anything worth rebuilding, it cannot be rebuilt alone. Anything worth rebuilding cannot be built alone. Now you might say, Scott, I'm actually pretty good by myself. I work well by myself. I can do things by myself. The truth is most of the things that we have to rebuild in our lives still are things that are bigger than us. I'm not sure who said it first, but if the vision that God has given you for your life doesn't require other people, you're not thinking big enough. And with the rebuilding that we're doing in this season as a church, as individuals, I think it's big enough that we can't do it by ourselves. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on and head to Nehemiah 2 and 3. If you were here last week, you're like, Scott, we covered chapter 2 last week. Yeah, we're going to play a little bit of, of catch up there. But we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning. And, uh, and as you turn there, uh, I want to thank uh, those of you who uh, have stepped up in this season to serve. As, as Paul and Clovis mentioned, it's awesome to have so many new volunteers serving today and uh, stepping up uh, to do the work with us. Today, as we dive into Nehemiah 2 and 3, we're going to look at three lessons that we can learn from their response to their rebuilding project. And I mentioned we're going to play a little bit of catch up. And so we're going to read here from Nehemiah 2, verses 17 and 18. This is Nehemiah speaking. He says, So I said to them, to all the people in Jerusalem, You see the trouble that we are in. 
Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And so they said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do the good work. The first lesson we can learn from all of the people's response to this rebuilding project is that accomplishing God's mission will require all of God's people to work together. If we're going to accomplish the mission that God has for us, it's going to take all of us working together to accomplish that. God does not have a mission just for each of us individually that we follow on our own. He has a mission for us collectively that we have to partner in together. And I'd encourage you today to to do me a favor. When you go home, I want to encourage you to take some time and read all 32 verses of of chapter 3 of Nehemiah. It's not going to take you a tremendously long time, but you're going to see some things that I'm just going to kind of introduce to you and preview to you. You see, in Nehemiah chapter 3, what we read are 48 groups or individuals who are referenced and their work is cited. I brought my Bible that I do my study in here, and if the cameras can zoom in, I've got this thing doctored up. I pulled out my green highlighter and my red pen and my blue pen, and I went to work on this passage. Because there are sections in the Bible that that I think we tend to gloss over. Sections like the book of Numbers, which you're like, math? I don't do math. Even in church, like I just stay away from that. Or books like First Chronicles, which record history. And, and on its face, Nehemiah 3 is one of those passages you go, this just kind of seems like a lot of really hard names to pronounce and a, a lot of numbers. But what we see here is that Nehemiah describes 48 different groups or individuals who contributed work to rebuilding the wall. Translation, this wasn't just a project that Nehemiah could do by himself, even if he was a master builder, which he wasn't. He was a cupbearer. The the, the passage tells us in great detail that it took a large number of people with a large and diverse set of skills to rebuild the wall. It took all of them to accomplish God's mission. I love what Christopher Wright says about this. He said, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. God has purposes here in Nehemiah for a rebuilding of a wall, and he has purposes in this world. And the church exists to carry out and accomplish that mission. And that mission is so big that none of us can do it on our own. It's so massive that it humbles us and it reveals our need for each other to accomplish it. And as God has orchestrated things in the world, community, that thing that we all say that we want, is often the product or the sum of a shared experience and a shared mission. That's why so many times you come back from an experience in a mission trip, and I'm using air quotes here intentionally, on a mission trip, and the byproduct of a shared experience and working together is community. Many times as a pastor, the thing I hear people say when they come is, I really am desperate for community. Well, you don't get community by just standing and rubbing shoulders in the lobby for 10 minutes after the service. 
You get community when you share an experience with people and when you break a sweat together. Now, most of the relationships that I had in college in some way came out of a classroom experience. We, we all sat together and we worked through accounting or, or finance or we studied the book of numbers or we learned English or psychology. But the real deep relationships that I found in those formative years in college were because we shared some experience together and we worked on something together. We went through something together and on the other side, we were more connected. And so often what happens is that we recognize we're isolated, we want community, but we forget the process that God uses to build the thing that we were created for. And what we see right here in Nehemiah 3 is that an incredible sense of community emerges because they lock arms together to accomplish the mission and God pur- the purpose God has for them. There was a wall that was several miles long and it had been broken for nearly 150 years. And this wall had radically altered the psyche of an entire people. If you have your Bible still open, in, in Nehemiah 2.17, Nehemiah says, come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall. Why? Why are they rebuilding the wall? So that we will no longer be a disgrace. This wasn't a building project in totality. It was a soul and community reformation project. Not having these walls for generation after generation after generation had taken a toll. And for them to rebuild, it was going to take all of them. I mentioned school a little bit ago. And one of the things that happened when I was in school was that teachers would assign group projects. Now, I hated group projects because group project was translation for two of us are going to work and three of us are going to get free A's. Because there would be the freeloader who didn't show up for anything except the night before it was due, they'd email you and say, hey, what do I need to do? Dude, it's already done. Just go back to sleep, you know? And, and so I hated group projects because what it meant was somebody had to kind of drive the work and I tended to be that kind of motivated person. And so I tended to drive the work and I would so much rather just do the project by myself because it, it just, in my mind, meant less work. And so I, I've met a lot of people in life that don't really, didn't really enjoy group projects in school. The only problem is in the context of rebuilding. Rebuilding is a group project. It's not a solo assignment. You can't rebuild what was broken all by yourself. You can't rebuild your relationships by yourself. It takes others. If part of your business or a part of your career was was impacted by 2020, you're going to need help to do that. And and to rebuild, we have to get comfortable using the three words in the English vocabulary that some of of us consider to be the highest of of profanity. There's three words that some of us will do all we can to never utter. And those three words are, I need help. And if you never utter those words, my gut tells me that you're not going to rebuild. That you're going to settle for less 
and you're going to miss out on what God has for you. We've intentionally used that word help in our mission statement here at Cornerstone. Our mission as a church is to help people take their next step with Jesus. We exist as a church to help people, those of you who are here, those of you watching online, those who haven't yet discovered our church, to help all of you take your next step with Jesus because all of us have a next step. And if you don't think you have a next step, your next step is humility. And I just encourage you, humble yourself because being humbled by God is way more painful. But our mission is not just for us to help you take your next step with Jesus. At a certain point, our mission has to become your mission. Where you're not the people who are being helped to take your next step. But when you become cornerstone and you help other people take their next step with Jesus. Because if you only view this mission statement passively, like somebody else is helping me take their next step, you don't step into the mission yet, you just receive it. And our passion and desire is for you to not just read that as somebody who is receiving it, but somebody who's participating in giving it. And that's what we see right here in the beginning of this passage in, in Nehemiah 3, is that accomplishing God's mission takes all the people working together. If you have your Bible still open, open up to Nehemiah 3, and this is where my life is going to get fun because I've got to read you hard Bible names. Nehemiah 3.1 says, The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. And they dedicated it and installed its doors. And after rebuilding the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. And after him, this is verse 8, Uziel, son of Harhiah, the goldsmith, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, the son of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And then in verse 12, beside him, Shalom of Halohesh. Halohesh? Yeah, Halohesh. Ruler of half the district of Jerusalem made repairs, he and his daughters. The second lesson we learn from these rebuilders is that not everyone is expected to do everything, but everyone is expected to do something. When you're rebuilding, no one is expected to do everything, but everyone has their part. Everyone is expected to do something. I can remember stories of friends and family who've been faced with rebuilding. Whether it was a, a tornado or a hurricane, a flood or a fire, the thing that nobody tells you about rebuilding is that things can fall apart in seconds or minutes, but take weeks, months, and years to rebuild. And when you're faced with the, the rubble it can be overwhelming because you think, how am I going to do this by myself? I can't do this by myself. This is why people who've been through hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and fires, when they tell you the story of what happened, invariably they don't just talk about how terrible the loss was and how amazing the finished product was. They begin telling you about the people who showed up. The people who stepped in and helped them mud their house. The people who stepped in and ripped out carpet or reframed, or carried out garbage, or who brought food, 
or who just showed up and, and cried and wept with them. Everybody didn't do everything, but everybody can do something. Because in the moment when you're staring at the rubble, the most tempting thing to say or believe is, you know what, I'm just going to give up. Because this is too overwhelming and I don't have any help. And that's why it's so important in those moments to accept the help that's coming, even if it's imperfect, because it will keep you going. And we see here in Nehemiah 3, these several examples of people who began to commit to the work they could do. There's Eliashib, and he's one of the priests. He's actually the high priest. And he and all of his fellow priests, they begin rebuilding the sheep gate in verse 1. Now the sheep gate is where the sheep who are going to be sacrificed in the temple came in. And so the priests have an invested interest in that gate being rebuilt because it makes their work as priests so much easier. There's a, a reference here in, in verse 8 to Uziel, the goldsmith, and Hananiah, the, the perfumer, and, the, and they restore the wall as far as the broad wall. Because as business owners, if the city is secure, their businesses can thrive and flourish. Then we see in verse 12 a reference to this man, Shalom, who's a ruler over half of Jerusalem. And he comes, and he makes repairs, and he brings his daughters— See, this isn't just a project for people who are skilled carpenters and builders. This is a group project, and everybody's welcome. Not only men, but women and children, too. That's what's amazing to me at Cornerstone every week, is that we see families serving together. If you walked in today and you saw signs that told you where the bathroom was and where, where to go, if you had parking cones that guided you in, all of those were set up by people in this church, men, women, and children, who've all taken the opportunity to serve and contribute and create a place for you to connect. If you're watching online from home, many of you have watched services where the audio and the video has been run by people who can't even vote yet. Because they recognize that they can't do everything, but they can do something. Even people from far away come. It says in Nehemiah verse 5 that beside them the Tekoites made repairs. The Tekoites live 8 to 10 miles away from Jerusalem, and they would come in daily to do the work in rebuilding. But you notice in verse 5 a reference that's really important. It says, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. That word, did not lift a finger, that phrase in English, is a phrase in Hebrew that literally means stiff-necked. Like a, a pair of oxen that are stiff-necked, that won't go where they, they need to be led. They're stubborn. And there were some people who said, you know what, I'm not going to do the work. I'm not going to go. You can go, that's fine, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to contribute to it. They can rebuild their walls on their own. And there's some people who just won't stoop down to do the work. Even though these were nobles, they were leaders of a certain status. And, and we have a, a mantra at Cornerstone. It didn't start with us. We stole it from somebody else. But we repeat it all the time. And what we say is, if serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. That leadership is not a function of your competency and your giftedness. It's a function of your character. Because we've so often seen in the church and in our country that you can have the skills to be a leader, but not have the character. And when you don't have the character, eventually that 
stage underneath you collapses and you take other people out with you. This is why I love what T.J. Betts says. He says, a church's greatness is not measured by its size, numerically. It's measured by the percentage of people taking responsibility for what Christ has called them to do in his service. Greatness in the kingdom is marked by service. According to the definition of Jesus, if you want to be great, you serve. He said to his disciples, I didn't come as God to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the epitome of greatness. He's the definition. And what did he do? He was the suffering servant. And if we want to be great, that's the only path. Sure, there's a path that our world offers, but we've seen the fruit of that. And we want fruit from a different tree. And that's why I hope that I never hear a certain phrase at Cornerstone. And that phrase is, that's not my job. If you're a leader, a teacher, a parent, if you're responsible for anybody or anything, a phrase that you need to burn out of the vocabulary of those that you are responsible for, including yourself, is this. That's not my job. That phrase is a sign of a toxic culture. Yeah, that's not your job. But guess what? It's not below you. And if it is below you, then you've missed what this is all about. And in this passage, you have leaders, goldsmiths, perfumers, priests, and little girls who are saying, you know what? I didn't go to school or get trained to build a wall, but guess what? That's the job in front of me. And I can't do everything, but I can do something. So I'm going to pick my part, and I'm going to give what I have. The third lesson we learn is that where we work and who we work alongside makes a big difference. Where we work and who we work alongside in rebuilding makes a big difference. I mentioned earlier that I want you to go home and read Nehemiah 3. When you read Nehemiah 3, one, one thing you will find is there are a number of references to places where the rebuilding happened. I just put a, a selection of these up here. There's descriptions of gates and towers. There is, for those of you who can read well, there is a dung gate. I'm not covering that one today, but if you want to dig into that, you can knock yourself out. Some interesting things about that in your Bible dictionary. There's a description of a house of heroes. There's a description of fountains. There's all these specific descriptions and in many of these descriptions, what you find is that the people who are doing the work in those parts are doing the work because of where the work is happening. Their job, their vocation, their responsibility is attached to that place. And the people went to work on the wall where the wall represented what they treasured. You'll see people who rebuild the wall across from their house. Well, that's because they value the safety of their home and their family. We said earlier that people went to work rebuilding the sheep gate because that concerned their work. People went to work near their, their shop because that security impacted their work. And where what they treasured was in jeopardy, they gave themselves to the work. This epitomizes what Jesus himself said in Matthew 6. 
He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And they experienced that. Where the thing they treasured was, their heart and their sweat went, and that's where they served. And they didn't have to rebuild the whole miles and miles of walls. They just had to do their part. And so often we get overwhelmed with the project because we either don't ask for help or we look around and we find that others around us aren't doing their part. And maybe those people who aren't doing their part are saying, man, if I, if I do this and other people aren't doing their stuff, I'm, I'm giving up my free time. I'm going to have to serve forever. I'm never going to have a time off. If we all do our parts, there's room and there's a reasonable pace and rhythm for all of us. But when we all don't do our parts, not only does the work not get done, but the work crushes us. Jesus himself talked about this. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce fruit, that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will give you. That that word appointed means I have placed you where you are on purpose and for a purpose. Where you are today is not an accident. It's intentional. God has allowed you to be there for reasons that you don't yet comprehend. And I wonder, what if God has placed you where he wants you to start rebuilding? What if God has you somewhere where things are broken down so that you can be a part of the rebuilding? That he's appointed you and planned and allowed for you to be there for such a time as this. That he might use you to be a part of something grander that he's doing. And when you go home and read Nehemiah 3 today, I I would encourage you that that one of the values of reading a physical Bible is that you can mark it up. The goal is not not to keep your Bible in perfect condition without any marks. No. The goal is to doctor and write and mark this thing up as much as you can. And if you do that, as you study the Bible, I want to encourage you to pay attention to repeated patterns. If you see a word or a phrase popping up again and again and again, that's something to pay attention to. In the same way that if you're married and your spouse keeps bringing something up, maybe something to listen to. Well, I've been married for 13 years, but I'm picking up on some of these these things. And one of the things that happens again and again and again in Nehemiah 3 is you read a phrase next to them. In fact, 29 separate times in these 32 verses, you see references to space and connection. Phrases like next to them, beside them, and after them. In Nehemiah 3, 3 through 5, here's what it says. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors and bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. And beside them, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, son of 
Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Bazan, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs. See, these descriptions are not incidental. They're intentional. Nehemiah is trying to tell us that they weren't serving and sweating and rebuilding in isolation, but they were doing it together. And they could see the other people who were serving and serving together. It strengthens both of us. See, when I look over, exhausted from the work I'm doing, and I see somebody else doing similar work, in my head I go, you know what? I'm not alone. They haven't given up yet. And I can keep going. And sometimes when you're the other person over there doing the work, you go, oh man, I want to give up. I want to give up. I want to give up. And you're about to give up. And you look over and the person over here just got back to work. And you go, you know what? They, they didn't give up. Okay, I won't give up. And that happens again and again and again and again and again. Ephesians 6 tells us that, that we are in a spiritual battle. Waging a war against powers and principalities, against the, the powers of spiritual darkness. And, and that the thing that our enemy cannot do if we have given our lives to Jesus Christ is he cannot snatch us out of Christ's hand. But he can make us give up in the work that God has called us to do. He can make us give up on somebody that we're holding out hope for for the future. He can make us give up. And not have that hard conversation that would transform that relationship or transform our family. He can make us give up as we're paying off debt and moving towards financial freedom. He can make us give up. And yet when we're serving together next to one another, beside one another, after one another, that isolation that we're feeling, it transforms from a weakness into a strength. And this is why, whether you're here on Sunday mornings or you're watching from home, I just want to encourage you to ask yourself some questions this week about your level of isolation. And if you're beginning to think about rebuilding, I want to encourage you. Anything worth rebuilding cannot be rebuilt. Now, if you've got a copy of the handout and you're following along, I've got some next steps for you this morning. And the first next step is this. I want to encourage you to identify your isolation challenge. What is it about isolation that's causing a problem? Maybe you just step back even further and say, how isolated am I compared to six months ago, 12 months ago, two years ago? And, and is your isolation re related to some factor outside of your control completely? Or is there something you can control? As you've been talking today and I've been sharing what's God been pricking on your heart when it comes to your isolation that he wants to deal with. Number two, I want you to name the lies that you believe. Some of us are isolated because we've believed things about our isolation that are untrue. And I'm going to share a couple of these. Some of us are isolated because we believe, oh, you don't need me. Oh, they don't need me. They got it. Oh, the church, oh, they, they got tons of people. They, they're, they're making it happen. They don't need me. Or we say to ourselves, I don't need you. I've got this. Y years ago, I, I did a sermon over at Campi College. It was our 1030 service. And my intro to this sermon revolved around the phrase, I got this. And as soon as I said those words, the fire alarm went off. And we had to empty the building. We couldn't have church the rest of the day. 
True story. So whenever I say those words, I got this, I feel like an alarm going off in my head. And I'm so glad for that because that phrase is a lie. Because I don't got this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't got this. The only reason you have hope for the future is because he's got this. You might say, well, nobody notices my work. So why share? I'll just go do it by myself. This passage shows 48 different people who went to work and we're still here 2,500 years later talking about them. It's proof that God sees your work. And at the end of the day, that's enough. And if 48 people who rebuilt this wall, we know their names 2,500 years later, I can promise you, there are people who notice your work. Or nobody can do better than me. I mentioned humility earlier. Sometimes our pride is the enemy of the thing we want. And we have to step into humility before we can experience community. And then I deserve more for doing more work. There's some instances here in Nehemiah 3 where people do their work and then they pick up more work. And they, they weren't doing that for extra recognition. They were doing it because they cared about the mission and the purpose that much. So you've got to identify the lies and then you've got to replace the lies with God's truth. So I told you earlier the lie that I tend to believe is that I've got this. And so for me, it was naming that lie, which is I don't need help, I've got this. And once I named that lie, what I did, and you could easily do this, is begin describing what is that. Well, is that pride? Is that ego? Is that arrogance? Is that self-sufficiency? And then I went online, and I I used a couple different apps. I I used a website called BibleGateway.com, and I downloaded an app from my phone called the Bible app. And I went in their search functions, and I started searching for verses about that. And little did I know, there's a lot of verses in the Bible about pride. There's a lot of verses in the Bible about humility. And I begin to identify what are the scriptural truths that replace the lies that I believe. And then I began memorizing those verses. So if you have some lies that you've discovered today, I'd encourage you to get really clear on the lie and then go searching for scriptural truths that speak to that because you can't defeat a problem you haven't defined. And until you get clear on what the lie is you're believing, you don't know which of the specific truths you need to replace it with. One of the verses I memorized is this, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. And God started committing me about this in late 2019. So I started working on this in early 2020, not knowing what was coming. And there's some people that I started really inviting into my life in the beginning of 2020 that even this week were reaching out to me and encouraging me and reminding me that I don't got this, that I need help. Finally, number four, reduce your isolation today. Here's the final question I want to leave you with. What is one thing you can do today before your head hits the pillow that you can do to reduce your isolation? If you're really isolated, let's just be honest, You're not going to fix it today. 
It's like that house that's been destroyed by a tornado or hurricane, a fire or a flood. The house falls down in a day. It doesn't get rebuilt in a day. You didn't get here overnight, and, and you've not been here overnight, so you're probably not going to get out of this overnight. But identify one thing that you can do today to reduce your level of isolation, trusting that when you begin stepping in that direction, God's grace will meet you there and do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the, the testimony of these 32 verses in Nehemiah 3. We thank you for the testimony of these 48 different groups or individuals who came together to do this work. I have to believe that, that they're not somehow more spiritual or more mature than us, that they're just as broken and imperfect as we are. Some of them said, okay, I can do this on my own. Some of us said, oh, they don't need me. Some of us who said, you know, this is just too big. It's too large. There's no way we're going to accomplish this. Some who said, you know what, this is just too difficult. I'm going to give up. And yet by the power of your grace and your mercy and the way you worked through all of them, being beside one another and next to one another and with one another, the work continues. God, we have some huge work to do in rebuilding. We have work to do in rebuilding our families and our relationships. We have work to do in rebuilding our companies, organizations, our schools. We have work to do in rebuilding our church. And Jesus, you have work to do in rebuilding our hearts and our souls. But Jesus, we pray that the work would begin. And in the same way that you chose 12 men to do life with you while you were here on earth, we pray that we would choose and pursue people you might use to help us sustain in this battle. We know that you're the one who fights for us, but we also know that we stay in the fight longer and with more faith when we don't fight alone. So I pray that this week that isolation would be diminished, that loneliness would be pushed back, and that you would draw your people together in ways they haven't been together before. In your name, Jesus, we pray.